go. Um, all right, so we thank our monthly sponsors, Helena David Brenner, Miriam and Avram Deutsch, and Mindy Barad, and as well as our weekly sponsors, Tzvi and Yal Katzman, and Zahava Englert and Norman Shapira. Okay, so at the end of chapter 24, this was, we studied this two weeks ago. Here you go. There's more sources in here. The end of chapter 24, when Shaul realizes that David could have killed him in the cave. If you remember the story of the cave, Shaul promises, it's a very emotional moment, right? And he promises that he will not chase David anymore. He even acknowledges that David's going to be the king, which is a very big moment. Right, so that should have been the end of the Shaul David drama. But here we are again, now in chapter 26, with another chase. Right, so what happened? What changed? You know, why is he chasing David again? And why do, we, you know, why do we need a second story like this? You know, when you read this superficially, this story, it looks almost like a repetition of chapter 24. Right. Right. So, but as we've seen, though, any, any chapter that we're studying in Sefer Shmuel, even if it seems like if you were learning it as a Nathiomi, you know, quick 10-minute study of the chapter, or just reading through it, it seems a little bit boring. It seems not all that interesting. All you got to do is dig a little bit and you realize how fascinating it is. So I put here the whole, the whole chapter. I'm not going to read through all of it because we'll kind of go through it again afterwards, but just to get the big picture, right? Once again, right, it, it's very similar to chapter 24. The Ziphites, the people of Ziph, they, they come to Shaul again with their Lashon Hara, saying that David is hiding himself with his men. So, and Shaul now goes and runs off and chases David again with 3,000 men. Um, and he goes out there and he pitches his tent. You know, they're in the wilderness trying to chase David and his men. Um, and David saw where Shaul was, right? And he was aware, so they were hiding. Um, and when they went to sleep that night, David goes and pulls off this like really daring caper, right? He, he, he speaks to a couple of his men, Achimelech the Hittite and Avishai the uh, Ben Sruya, who's the brother of Yoav, who will be David's great general. Um, so he says to them, well, you know, who's going to come down with me to the camp of Shaul? 3,000 men, heavily armed, just who wants to come with me? Just us, right, to sneak down there. And they do, they go down there. They're all sleeping in what's a, called a tardema, very deep sleep, which we'll speak about. But just to get the sense here, very similar, right? Just remember David is in the cave, right? And, and Shaul comes in a couple, a couple of weeks ago as we studied, right? Shaul doesn't realize that he's there. Same thing here, Shaul's sleeping. All of his men are sleeping. Nobody realizes um, and he goes there and he cuts off, you know, a piece of, uh, no, not this time. That was two weeks ago. He cuts off a piece of his clothing. This time he takes his spear. He takes, uh, you know, the, the cruise of water, right? Things that belong to Shaul and then goes back, you know, to the other side of the valley, right? Where he could speak to him, but where they can't be reached, right? Where he's safe. Um, and then, you know, they call out to them and he says, Shaul, come on, you know, here we are again. And he addresses Avner, right, who said, how could you let me come here, right? Avner, you're supposed to be protecting Shaul. You're all sleeping. Who's protecting the king, right? I could have come and killed him. Shaul has a whole other, again, you know, a whole uh, emotional, oh, you're right, David, I'm so sorry, my son, right? It's like a repetition of chapter 24. Um, And then they go, you know, they go their separate ways, right? And there's so many repetitions. So again, the Zifim, the same people with Lashon Hara. The same 3,000 men are chasing David. David, you know, has, the, has an opportunity to kill 
Shaul doesn't do so, and Shaul is completely clueless, right? Um, also here, in both of these cases, I didn't read, go through it right now, <coughs> David's men turn to him and say, right, that God has given you the opportunity to kill Shaul. So we remember from the cave, but also now, Avishai ben Sruya, right, Yoav's brother, says to David, okay, here's the moment, let's go kill him, finally, we have, right, again. And again, of course, David refuses, right, because this is Shaul, the God's anointed, right? Again, he takes something from Shaul. Last time he cut off a piece of his clothing. Now he takes his, uh, his spear and his water. And again, he calls out to Shaul and says, why are you chasing me? Again, Shaul refers to him as my son. Again, David refers to himself, I'm just a flea. I'm a nobody. Why are you chasing me? Right? I mean, it's, it's incredible. And again, Shaul admits that he's wrong. So... Why would you say that he knows he's the and Shaul has said he's going to be king? He's not a nobody at all, and he is a real threat to the kingship. So what's with this false... What's with this... It's a good question, right? You know, is he being, is he being falsely humble or is he being truly humble, right? I mean, he's he knows, he knows right, but he also knows he also does he does even in his broken state he reveres his father-in-law. Yeah, but right? he also knows why his father-in-law is pursuing him. He knows perfectly well. So what's with the, what's the, why the game? Yeah, I, it's a good question. Why he keeps referring to himself as a flea? I mean, the last time when we learned it. Uh, some of them first them explained that he's like a flea. He's hopping from place to place, you know. But obviously, as you're saying, the simple meaning is that I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. Why are you chasing me? It's me and 400, 600 men. We're just, you know, a bunch of guys in the wilderness. I'm not out to hurt you. And maybe that's what he's trying to emphasize to Shaul. That just like a flea is annoying, perhaps, but a flea doesn't hurt, can't really hurt you, right, as, as a human being. right? What's a flea really going to do to you? But that's my point. It's the same thing. Shaul, right, David is saying, I'm not going to hurt you, just like a flea. not going to hurt you, but he's going to take over the Right, but he's extremely clear. But it's also interesting, right? Because like you get a flea like in your ear or something, it drives you crazy. That's right. And that's right. David's that flea that's in his ear that's driving him crazy. That's right. That's right. And he doesn't know when he's going to be king. Yeah. He has no idea when. It could be a long time from now. He doesn't know. Right. So, so as David says in this chapter, it's very clear. Like, right? This, you, he, you will not die at my hands. It'll maybe be in a war, be something else. You do not have to worry for me. He's now proven it twice, right? So in that sense, he really is a flea, even if he's not a nobody, right? We know that he's, and he, David, this is not false humility. He knows who he is. He knows he's anointed. He knows he's going to be king of Israel. You're absolutely right. But he's trying to make the point to Shaul. Right, but now, so, so, so what are we learning here? What are the, right, the, when we find these kinds of similarities between stories, so you could say it's boring and then just move on. Or you can pause and think, okay, what, what's the same, but really what's different as well? Right? A lot of the stories that we looked at, especially over the last year, couple of years now already, about the, the women who are, who are struggling with having children. Um, when we look at them, we compare Rachel to Hannah, right? And, and the similarities, and then you find the differences, you get great insight into who Hannah was, into who Rachel was, and what one was struggling with, and what the other one was struggling with. So it's the same thing here. The differences in the story are, are significant. So one clear change in this chapter is that a new, you know, a new person um, comes into the story, and that's Avner. Right? We've heard his name before. Avner is the general of Shaul, and he will play a very significant role down the road as well, at the beginning of Shmuel Bet. Um, but, but who is this Avner, right? He's mentioned repeatedly here. David even addresses him 
and calls him to task for not doing a good job of protecting his master, Shaul. Um, so I, 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 just for fun, I put in here the, uh, the map of a Rugot farm and, and where this whole story happened. I forgot to point that out here, number two. You can just take a look. I thought it was very interesting. So if you see that red dot, right, that, right the, the Inveyan Nachal, that's, that's right where Arugot Farm is. That's the little, like, Breslov religious Zionist, whatever that little funky community is over there next to Arugot Farm. You know, we're friends with these guys. You know, these are our friends. So then you, and then on the picture on the right shows you where, you know, this is the wilderness of Zif, which is kind of in between Arugot Farm and Engedi in that area, Right where they are, that's where these events happened. I mean, it's just just amazing. Next time you go there, you know you can uh, not only can you read this, you can also read the, several of the chapters of Tehillim that are you know that David wrote in these places. Right when he was going through these moments and these 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 situations. Anyway, that's about as far as I can get with the geography because I uh, still new here, you know. So, but I know it's in the, you know it's in that area, and it's amazing. You look around, you see the caves, and you see that that terrain, and you can see why you know Shaul would be on one side, David is nearby. How he could call to him from one hilltop to another hilltop, it really it makes sense. It brings it to life. Now, uh, so who is this Avnir? So, if you look at number number three in Tehillim, it says Nafshi betoch levaim eshkavalo atim. My soul is among lions. Um, and, and who does this refer to? So says the, the Talmud Yerushalmi, right, The way Chazal at least understood Avner is that he was actually a great Torah scholar, which is interesting. We find this a lot also with, with later on with Benayahu, Ben Yehoyada, and other people who were, when you just read Tanakh, they're generals, right? But when you... When you learn about them in the Gemara, they're Torah scholars. It's like they're very interesting. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, oh, you know, very interesting, right? So Avner is a Torah scholar, according to the Gemara. Now, the Medrash says that, um, that Avner plays a, a, a really key role in this whole David-Shaul drama, right? It's not open. It's, it, this is the behind-the-scenes um, and, and what does he do? So says the Medrash, when Shaul went off, his, right, this, is after, this is chapter 24, when he left the cave and David said, I could have killed you and I didn't. Shaul's giborim, his warrior, said to him, What, because David didn't kill you in the cave, now all, he's such a righteous person? He knows that if he would have touched you, right? He, he, would, right? he knows that we would have gone in there and chopped him up into pieces, right? Because he was stuck in that cave. So, oh, he's saying that he did it because he's so kind and because he loves you and because he's not really doesn't want to harm you, but it's all a bunch of lies, right? He is very dangerous, but he was being smart. Right, because he knew that we would come in and we'd, we'd, we'd cut him to pieces. Now, David could have just stayed inside the cave and not told, said anything to Shaul. So the fact that that's not really a great argument, right? Because he could have stayed hidden. Yeah. I, I also read that um, there's another opinion that, that Abner said that the, his coat was torn by a thorn bush or something. And, uh, could be. and yeah. David found it, he made the whole thing up. Right. So this is, you know, we interpret things. We interpret reality based upon our, our views, right? I mean, this is happening right now as well, mm. right? 
you would, there are people who've changed their minds about things after October 7th, but there are a lot of people who haven't. The story we want to tell ourselves. Yeah, it's very hard. And, I, and frankly, I, I understand it. And I have like mercy of people because I'm sure I've done the same thing in my life, right? Which is that you, if you're committed <laughs> to a certain way of seeing the world, you know, we, we, we identify ourselves with our views. Who we are, right, is what I believe. So if a person has seen the world a certain way for decades, so then something horrific like this happens, which blow, you know, blows up in, in their face, it takes a very honest person. Like I saw an article by Daniel Pearl's cousin, right, Hashem Yikom Domo, but Daniel Pearl, the Wall Street Journal reporter, right, who was beheaded, right? So his, he had a, a younger cousin who was like a very patriotic Jew, but, but also was, you know, very, very much a liberal, um, but he wrote a whole piece. It's, I think it's in the free press, uh, the FP, that, um, that, that website. Very powerful piece about how he's, he's admitting that he was wrong about a lot of things, which was, I thought was very powerful. But most people are not going to follow in his footsteps. It's very difficult to do that. I have great respect for, for someone who can do that. Um, and again, I'm sure I've been guilty of it myself. It's very tough. Um, so Avner, and this, and this really begs the question, why is Avner so committed to this, right? Does he not see, like, you know, what's going on with David, that Shaul is, is, is declining dramatically? David has, you know, one unbelievable thing after another. Remember all those people, all the enemies that he killed, the 200 foreskins and all this stuff, right? Why is Avner, who's such a Torah scholar? Well, a Torah scholar should be somebody who's clear. Now, we know Doeg was not. But what is it that's, that's Avner, by all accounts, is a good man? So why is he twisting the reality here, right? What's going on? We have to, we have to think about that. Um, so, right, it's interesting. So it said, so, but miyad shamaviki bel mehem. So immediately Shaul heard what Avner and the other warriors said. And he said, okay, I'm going to go, I'm going back after David again, right? All of that emotion, all of that, you know, humility, you're going to be the king, all out the window. And Shaul is, you know, because also, Shaul is in a, vul- a very vulnerable emotional state. So when he has somebody like Avner, his warrior is telling him, even if it's not really the most compelling uh, version of the events, right? Because again, David could have stayed hidden in the cave. He didn't have to go through this whole motion, right? Um, even if it's not the most compelling version, it's the version that fits best with his ego, right? It's the version that fits best. So therefore, that's the version he accepts, Right? There will be, as you know, many people, will, and we see it every day, are interpreting what happened, which we can't understand. How could you possibly interpret it any other way? And yet the world is doing so because they're committed right, in certain ways to certain beliefs. So they're going to interpret every reality according to the narrative. That's just how it is. So Shaul is doing the exact same thing. You see how contemporary this is. It's unbelievable. Right? Things that have been written thousands of years ago. We're, we're living it today. So now, here in chapter 26, David cries out to, you know, to, to, the, to, the, to the men who are with Shaul, and specifically Avner. So, Amarlo, So you twisted this, you know, in chapter 24, that last story, when I could have killed Shaul, you turned Shaul against me. But now what are you going to say, Avner? Right? You said, right, the reason I was saying that before and I, was, I, I let Shaul live is because you would have killed me and cut me into pieces. But now, but now I have the spear and I have the, the, the water, right? The, the water jug of, of Shaul, his water bottle, right? You know, and, now I'm, and you can't get me where I am right now. So now what are you going to say? What are you going to say? Right? Come on, Avner. 
Lo hayalo mala anot naase ilain. Avner couldn't couldn't respond. He became mute. He had nothing to say. Right. And if you remember going back to the first time, you know, the beginning of David's story when he kills when he's going out to kill Goliath, that you know, Chazal say that Avner, you know, is talking. To, you know, Shaul is talking to Avner. Who is this guy? We don't know who he is. He's, you know, they're questioning his, uh, his, his yichos and the whole thing, right? There's, there's something going on here that Avner, from, it seems maybe from the very beginning, has been very suspicious of David. That wasn't Doeg he was talking to back then? That was. So Doeg was there, but Avner is also part of it, of that conversation. If you look at that Gemara, right, Doeg is the one who's saying that he's not really Jewish. He's the one who, right? Avner is just questioning. Avner is not a Russia, right? Avner is, right, Doeg is the bad guy. Abner is, sort of, is, is a good man, right? He's, he's a Talmud Chacham, say the rabbis, but seems to have this discomfort with David. There's something with David that is, that is throwing him off. Mm-hmm. So, you know, why? Like, why is Abner continuing to push and push and keep chasing David? So I think we can understand it based on this past week's Parsha, okay? What happened in this past week's Parsha, right? Mm-hmm. When Hashem changes Yaakov's name to Yisrael, this is towards the end of the Parsha, Right, and this is where we, you know, we come to to Efrat. So, but but before we get to that, right, he changes his name to Yisrael. So Hashem says, Right, a a nation and a company of nations will come from you, and kings will come from you. Now, immediately after that, they go down to Efrat. Right? Kind of wild. Ateled Rachel, and Rachel goes into labor, and the whole tragedy of Rachel, right? She gives birth as she's dying, and who does she give birth to? To Binyamin. Now, try to interpret these psukim for a moment. What does this mean? Hashem says, you're going to have kings come from you. The next pasuk, what happens? He has a new son. Meaning, not the kids you've had already, but there will be kings that will come from you. Binyamin, exactly right, exactly right. Milachim will come from Shaul. Right now, we know that that actually is fulfilled because it's Shaul and and Ishboshet. Right, Ishboshet. That's Shmuel Bet. Right, we'll get to that. But it, that's technically fulfilled. Right, it is fulfilled. Two kings that will come from Binyamin. Right before it all goes to David. But first of all, right now, Shaul is alive, right? What is Milachim? It could be many Milachim, right? Now, yes, does, later on in Parshat Vayechi, where Yaakov blesses Yehuda as being lo yasur shevet me Yehuda, that there are kings, but it's not so clear, right? It's just multiple prophecies. And here, specifically, this one's coming from Hashem. There in Parshat Vayechi, it's, it's Yaakov blessing Yehuda. But this, this is coming directly from God himself, who says that kings will come from Binyamin. And Avner, if, right, according to the Gemara, is a Torah scholar. Okay? Now, I mean, it could be the understanding of Yaakov's blessing could be that it will eventually be in Yudah. Right. And at, at that point, it will never leave. Right now, we're on the even, first king. Right, we just started. It's only been a couple of years. Supporting Shaul will say, yeah, eventually it will be Yudah. Right. Yeah, yeah, Mashiach. When Mashiach comes, right. perhaps. Right. We don't know. It's not clear. But for now, it might just be lineage of Shaul. Exactly right. Exactly right. So now, all of a sudden, right, things start to make a little bit more sense. Right. The Avner, the Torah scholar from Binyamin, believes that his tribe is destined to remain, at least for a long time, the royal tribe. So that regardless 
of what Shaul said to David. Oh, you're going to be King David. Okay, whatever you say, Shaul. You're, frankly, Shaul is in decline. Avner was not, was not stupid. I'm sure he saw that Shaul was in decline. But whatever Shaul says is meaningless compared to what Hashem said to Yaakov. How do we know Abner is from Benjamin? Yeah. Where do we see that? Uh, so, well, he's, he's a cousin. He's a, he's a first cousin. <laughs> it's Kish. I, it, I think it's in Divrei Hayamin. We'll come back to that later when we, we do spend more time on Avner. But Kish's brother is the father of Avner, I think. So I think he's a first cousin to Shaul, right? In the same way that, that Yoav, you know, Ben Suriya is uh, cousins to, cousin to David. They're really the parallels, right? Avner is a... Uh, is to Shaul as Yoav and Avishai and so on are to, are to David. Okay? So this explains why David is addressing Avner specifically, right? Because Avner has been the key figure, as we'll see, certainly with Ishboshet later, right? he takes on an even bigger role. He is clearly the number one personality outside of Shaul, or himself, in Shaul's Malchus, right? That Yonatan, it seems, has taken a step back. He's still alive, Yonatan, right? He'll, he, he won't die for another few chapters until the war, which, together with Shaul. But, but Yonatan, it seems, has taken a, a backseat. He's certainly not running around with his father chasing David. Yonatan is best friends with David. Avner has taken on a new level of importance, right? So Shaul maybe already began to get this message a few chapters ago, but it's only now in, in 26, in this story, that he's beginning to, to get the story. So Avner is beginning to understand but there's also another subtle change, right, from chapter 24 to 26. Why, what we learn in this chapter, right, a very, very significant, significant difference. You remember a couple of weeks ago when we studied the chapter 24 in the cave, David is holding his sword, right? Shaul is using the bathroom, right? And, Shaul, and David is struggling. Do I kill him? Do I not kill him? What does God want from me? No matter what I do, I'm in trouble, right? He's torn apart doesn't know what to do. Then he cuts the corner of the robe and then he's killing himself over it, right? And later on he suffers and he David is, is twisted and doesn't know what to do, right? He, he's just so confused and uncertain. But here, if you go to the Pesukim, and I didn't read them all uh, inside very clear, but we should look at it right now, that when he goes down to the camp, right, he says, he says let's go, Vayakom David, this is uh, Pasuk number five, right? Pasuk hey. He goes down uh, to the place where Shaul was, and he sees that Shaul is sleeping, and Avner is also sleeping. So David says to Achimelech Achiti and to Avishai Ben Sriya, he says, who's going to go with me to Shaul, to his camp? And Avishai is the one who goes with him. They go down, and he takes the stuff, right? He takes the spear and the water, and then he goes back up. What do we see with David here? There's no hesitation. There's no... Uh, right? He's not twisted. He's not, he, there's no uncertainty. He's not, he's not having a crisis. He's not being passive. He's very active. He knows exactly what to do. Right? There's no crisis here whatsoever. There's, I, I don't think there's a Tehillim, as far as I know, that corresponds to chapter 26 in this moment. We have the, 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 the Tehillim, the chapter of Tehillim that we learned you know, with, with David's internal... Maskila David Marat right? That was when he was in the cave. He didn't, he didn't know what to do. And we have a beautiful Tehillim for all time. 142. Right? But but for this, there's not Tehillim, right? He goes and he takes the spear and he comes home. What so what has changed? Anyone have any ideas? What has changed from chapter 24 to chapter 26? 
What comes in between 24 and 26? Well, he, what he concludes from the experience of the cave is that it's not yet time for him to rule and that Shell's time isn't up yet. So he's still, he's still the king. So certainly he learned from that experience itself. But I would suggest that he's also learning from what happened in between, which is chapter 25, what we did last week, the story of Naval and Avigail, uh, uh, right? Oh, right? You have these two stories that seem very, very similar, and right. smack in the middle are Naval and Avigail. Right. So how do we understand that, right? What's going on? We see that David is a changed man. And who has changed him? Avigail, yeah. right? This is what, you, know, you see the power of a, of a good wife, what, you know, will transform her husband. Here, in this case, extremely quickly, which is unusual, right? Because I think, we, you know, we actually, today we we're celebrating our anniversary, 19 years. I think my wife feels very much like she's still trying to figure out how to control me, you know, and how to shape me, right? We're still a work in progress. But Abigail, thank you for the mazel tov. But Abigail is, you know, she, she operated very quickly, right? She taught David a lesson, like, immediately. And what was the main lesson that we learned last week from Abigail? What was her key teaching? Patience. patience right. You have to have patience. You're going to go kill him. You're going to go kill Naval, that husband that I hate. Right? right? She wasn't, it wasn't because of Naval. She was concerned for David. Right? You're not king yet. Yes, you were anointed, but you're not actively king yet. You have to, everything has its right moment. Right? You've got to be extremely, extremely careful. Right, so not far because we know the whole Malchus of Shaul is very short to begin with. It's only a few years, and you know this is all you know happening very quickly. David is, has not traveled anywhere else. The story of Naval and Abigail is in that Arugod farm area, right? With all remember all the sheep. That's what they do over there, right? They get they get our Christian friends in America to sponsor sheep. Right, I mean, not just Christians, Jews too. But that, I know I just talked to a Christian yesterday who has bought several sheep for Ari and Jeremy's farm. Right, they have the sheep there because that's how you hold on to the land. Right, mm-hmm. and but but that's exactly with the story of Naval. Naval is is a shepherd, right. He owns thousands of sheep and goats. Right, and on those hills, exactly on those hills. Only I'm suspecting that those hills were greener back then. Right, and that's otherwise like they look very brown right now until uh, they until a Rugod farm brought it back to life. Um, but on those hills, right? It's, David didn't go anywhere. It's all the same, you know, within a matter of months, a few months, this is not such a very long time. So it's kind of amazing, right? How, what, what Abigail is able to teach David, now he's equipped like with a newfound clarity and trust in Hashem's process that he didn't have before. Right? It, it's, it's so amazing to learn Torah this way. This is why I like Rabbi Polanski so much. Uh, his whole derech, and he follows other certain gedolim, is all about, when he learns Bereshis, it's all about the constant development of Avraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, and everyone, and all of the stories. That, right? They're all a work in progress. As, as, and that's the key lesson that we're supposed to be learning from all of them, is the constant progression and learning and failures and mistakes and growing and so on and so forth. Right? They're, right, they're not uh, plastic saints. That was uh, Rabbi Steinsaltz's, uh, one of his phrases. Right? That... that the, the people in Tanakh were not plastic saints, right? The people in the Gemara were not plastic saints. They were real people. They were, that's why they were great. And so David is, has grown significantly in just the last couple of chapters, right? And he's learned now that justice is not always going to come through his sword, right? Even though he's in the right. That's not an easy thing to, to learn. When you're correct, it's very hard to be right, right? I feel that way all the time. It's very, it's very tough, 
right? It's very hard. No, but the truth is, you know, I, I'm saying it as a joke, but like, think of people, I think of people who've lived here for decades, you know, like I talked to Josh and Marilyn Adler who called it 30 years ago, exactly, right? They've like, they knew exactly what was happening, yelled and screamed about it for 30 years and were pretty much unable to stop what was happening around them. It's incredibly difficult to be right all the time, right? And have other people, right, take so many decades to catch up and to figure out. And many people still haven't caught up, right? So it's extremely, extremely difficult. David is in the right. He's right. So to be able to be in the right, but not to pursue justice and not to take it into your hands before the time, you know, that's not such an easy thing uh, as a man of the sword. So, but now, you know, whereas, whereas Shaul falls into David's hands, in the cave in chapter 24, now David is in a more confident place, understanding how he should relate to Shaul, right? Knowing that he's not going to touch a hair on his head, right? Now he knows and understands how he should be, be dealing with Shaul. And under, right now he gets it. And so he acts confidently and, and proactively. And I think that's, you know, that's a lesson for our community to learn. I always, we always say that we are David. And a lot, you know, the secular Chiloni world of Israel is more Shaul. And... I think just as David didn't exactly know how to handle Shaul when Shaul seemed to be, it was angry and chasing David. Like, why do they hate us so much, right? I wonder all the time, my secular cousins, why do they hate us all so much? And they like us, but they hate everybody else. They hate all of you, but they like us because, you know, we're family. Right, so why, so why, right? It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. What have we ever done to them? We're living over here, right? What do they want? Like, they don't live nearby. Like, what is it? Like, you know, so... We may not always react in the best and possible way, but at a certain point, David, meaning our community, must learn and will learn, right? Not just you know how we can't, God forbid, hurt them, but also how to proactively teach them and show them that we love them, right? And that we become more confident in in knowing how to teach and spread the the love of Torah and so on and so forth, right? Our version of what David does here in chapter twenty six with Shaul, because this really is the final encounter. Shaul and David go after this chapter, they go in separate ways and Shaul goes, you know, heads towards his death, his tragic death, and David heads towards becoming the king, right? This is really the climactic moment. And it's here we are at the end of their, you know, this painful father-in-law, son-in-law relationship. Um, and, and David, though, by, by now understands how to teach, right? How to teach Shaul, right? He's figured it out. Um, but this patience is so, so important to learn how to do this and to know that everything takes time. Rav Avinair, right, who's not exactly known as like a, as a moderate. He can be very, you know, he has very strong views. But on this issue of patience and geula, I've read this in many, many, many places. I've read a lot of his stuff. Uh, and Rav Avinair is very strong on this point. He says, Mahalach kol hayesh mevusas al yesod hasavlanut. Right, the whole process um, is, is built of, of geula. Everything is going to be is built upon patience. Asarad derot me adam ad noach. And this we find this from the beginning of the world that there are ten generations from uh, from Adam to Noach, right? To show how much erech how much patience Hashem had with all of uh, with all of humanity, and then another ten generations from Noach to Avraham. Now patience does not mean you're just giving in, right? David has to be patient. But he can't, he can't give in to Shaul, right? He can't let Shaul kill him. He can't right, let Shaul win. But he also has to be patient. Right? And also patience does not mean doing nothing. Because there's another element here where 
when we're trying to bring the geula, you know, how much are we patient and being and sitting? Are we just sitting back and waiting for Hashem to do it? Or we also don't, don't we have to be active, right? So patience and, and activism go together, right? You have to be a patient activist, right? It says Ravavinir, which is not, you know, which is a real chachma to have this patient, pay, to be a patient activist. And David also had to be patient to wait, knowing that he was anointed, he had to wait. But he also had to do a lot in order to become, to go from being anointed to actually being king. Yeah. So on the one hand, he has to do, and on the other hand, he has to be patient, right? Which is exactly the situation that we find ourselves in right now. So on the one hand, you have to be, to have zrizos, you got to be strong and be pushing forward and doing everything that's in your hands. And on the other hand, you have to be patient about the results and understand that some things will take time, but, right? It takes time. It's so frustrating, but it's going to take Am Yisrael time. But, but David went and became, I won't say more chutzpah, but more strong and daring. Like he didn't just rip the thing. He took right. everything and said, hello. So he became, he became more of an activist, right. even as he became more patient. Right, which is kind of amazing, right? So the patience helped him gain clarity on the process, and that enabled him to not be frozen in, in tension and not sure what to do. Right? He knew that it's going to take a long time, but therefore, but I know what my job is in the meantime. And so he did his job. So, This is what it comes to Yishuv Haaretz, right? We need tremendous patience. Right? We don't, we, we don't uh, make short-term calculations. When it comes to the borders of our, of our nation, right? So we're, we're dealing with this situation right now where, I don't know what, we don't know what the numbers are exactly, so I'm not going to pretend to know, but we know there's a significant percentage of our soldiers I feel very strongly that we should not leave Gaza, meaning not just the army, but they're planting trees everywhere you go, meaning people who are down there, this is, we hear from them, right? I'm not me. I'm not saying we hear from people down there that like, when they talk to groups of soldiers, they, no, we're here to stay and we want to build that, we want to build up and so on and so forth. But, some, but that does not represent the government, like the government and the people, the average, they're not on the same page. It's often like that. Right, it's often, right, exactly. So, we know that we know that there's a there's some issues here, right? With with the, with the full yishuv of Haaretz, right? We're not all on the same page. There's a there's a disconnect. So that's incredibly frustrating, right? Incredibly frustrating. I think we need to take a deep breath and remember David, right? That's why we learn this. We're learning all of this for our, for ourselves right now. Yes, it's frustrating, but now we understand a little bit how David felt, right? David David is the klal is are, is the soldiers on the ground in in Gaza. And Shaul is the government that has the power. David sees, right, is seeing clearly that this is clearly where we need to be. There will be no safety if we, and security until we, are living, until we are living there. That's what happens. Any place we don't live, they fill with terrorism. That's how it goes. It seems so clear to us and that this land belongs to us and so on and so forth. But we have to have patience. It's not so easy. We can never for a moment forget the ideal of Eretz Yisrael HaShlema, the complete Eretz Yisrael. Right? We can't ignore what the Ramban says. That it's our job that we have to conquer, right? to inherit the whole land. We can't leave it in our enemy's hands. Meaning we have an obligation to eject them from areas A and B, according to the Rambam. We do. 
does that mean that we should go, all of us take our guns right now right, and, and charge into Area A, all right, and, like, and eject them? Right? Absolutely not, says Ravavinu, right? You can't do it because you have to, right? Because that's not the way Hashem is running the world. That's not how we made it happen with David, right? David had a long process. Now, you have to know every second of every day that that is our land, and it will be our land in, in actuality. But we also have to be extremely careful in how we go about these things and patient, right? Right? This is not complicated when you look at, right? right? We, have, we are commanded in conquering through all generations. But on the other hand, it's not going to happen with one jump all at once. Ela kima kima. We know the principle the Gemara teaches us of step by step. That's how redemption is going to come. A little bit of light, another little bit of light, and so on and so forth. And Rav Kook emphasized, Shekima Kima no gilui shel chulsha. Right? Kima Kima is not like a, a sign of weakness, that we can't conquer it all at once. Ela adaraba gvurata gvurot. Right? The ability to be, to step by step push forward, and despite all the frustration, to somehow be patient and not give up on the dream, and fight for it, perseverance is, is the greatest strength of all, right? I would suggest that what the, 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 move, the movement to settle Yehudan Shomron over the last 50 years, it's about 50 years, right, since Gushem Munim, it's just about 50 years, right, is far greater than the Six-Day War. Far greater. It's not even close. Six-Day War was all at once, but did it last? No, it didn't last. We conquered Gaza in a, few, in a matter of a few days. We conquered Yudan Shamron. We conquered the Golan. And yet we see that we don't really have Gaza. We don't really have Yudan Shamron. We don't. So the all at once is not the way Hashem wants it to happen. It clearly can't be. And yet what's, what's happened here to go from zero to well over half a million Jews living in Yudan Shamron and fighting and pushing and right, battling for it, it's infinitely greater. The Gvura of Kimma Kimma is much harder than the Six-Day War. Much, much harder. Right? You can... Exactly, yeah. But, I'm, but even so, we think about Gush Katif and what, what, the exa- what the example that they set and so on, they, it's not completely gone. Because they were there, because they were there, Am Yisrael feels a connection and that connection to Gush Katif is growing. I don't know if you saw the latest surveys about w- whether we should go back to Gush Katif and settle. I, it's, I, think it's a, I think at this point it's a majority. It was like 43 to 37, you know, some, 12, some percentage was you know, uncertain or whatever. But numbers that we've ne- we haven't seen uh, ever, like ever in terms of what the Jewish presence should be there in Gush Katif. So there, has, there is a shift that's happening in Am Yisrael. Very, it took a long time and tremendous pain, but th- there, is a, there is a shift. If you count um, <clears throat> the Jews in East Jerusalem, let's say, you, we actually, in Yudhur Shamron have the same number of Jews in which the state of Israel was founded. Which is absolutely incredible. That's actually, that's an amazing point. Oh. It's a very powerful point. Hmm. Exactly right. So this is not chulsha, it's gvura. Kima kima ein perusho yeshiva b'chibuk yadayim. doesn't mean that you're sitting here doing nothing, right? Bitoch tzipiyat you know, expecting, being lazy and expecting Hashem to bring Mashiach. Rather, it's asiyat kopula afsharit kadela kadeim otano ala matarat. It's doing everything that's in our hands, like we've done over these last 50 years, pushing, 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 right, in order to settle the land. Right? We know that Am Yisrael, lo mefached, that's the, that, that, that's, we're not afraid of it. We can't be, right? So this is, this is the, I think, a very, very key teaching from David HaMelech and uh, something we should 
try to try to absorb and keep with us. So, but but let's let's look at a at a small detail here. Easy to move move beyond. Remember, David says to two men, Achimelech Achiti, and Avishai ben Sruya, who's going to come with me down on this dangerous mission into Shaul's camp. So we know that Avishai says yes, but Achimelech doesn't go with him, right? So who is this Achimelech Achiti? who is important enough that he's actually mentioned before Avishai ben Surya. Who is he? And why won't he go on the dangerous mission with David and Tashaul's camp, right? Good. So what's going on here, right? So a Hittite, right, a Hittite, somebody who appears to be a non-Jew, the fact that he's here with David and clearly very important, he's one of his top men, otherwise he's not asking him, he's not being mentioned by name, and tells us something very important, which is that David had plenty of non-Jews, together with him, right? Non-Jewish friends. Um, and Shmuel Bet, Itai Hagiti, is one of the most important warriors. And at the time of Avshalom's rebellion, he sticks with David. So just to give you, you wanna, I, I wrote an article many months ago called Fight Like David. And uh, my, my friend, Zach Waller, right, from the, the Waller family in Harbracha, they're the ones who, who are hosting Brought in the Cowboys, right? That's the, and they're in Harbracha. So Zach Waller wrote a companion piece to, as a response, which is, which is very beautiful, called Fight Like Itai. You can look it up. It's great. Fight Like Itai. So I, just, I, I, put it, I brought here a little bit of it. He was writing this, he's writing this to Christians. Right? And he says, if you've kept up with what's been happening in Israel over the last few months and your heart is aching for the families of the recent terror victims, this is way before October 7th, what is our role as non-Jews? Enter Itai. You may not have ever heard of this particular biblical character. He's not so famous, only shows up twice in the whole Bible. And King David was having a very rough time, right? The state was falling apart. Uh, you know, Avshalom was uh, rebelling against him. As he was on his way out of the city with those who were faithful to him, he was surprised to find that Itai the, Git- the Gittite was also leaving Yerushalayim. So David says to him, why are you coming with us? Go back and stay with the king. You're a foreigner. You just came yesterday. You know, when it, you don't have to wander around with me in exile as a wanted man, right? So he tries to convince him that it's not his fight. He doesn't have to follow David. But Itai doesn't take no for an answer, right? He says, as the Lord lives and as my Lord, the king lives, wherever my Lord, the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Yeah. So I'm saying, you know, but we don't find that he converted. We're not told anywhere that he converted. So, you know, there he is, you know, so this is like Zach Waller is saying, like, that's, that's our job as Christians, you know, to stand with the Jewish people. We have to be the Itai Agiti, which I thought was very, very beautiful. Um, so, you know, it's possible that, that Achimelech has never heard again, heard from again. We don't find him again, you know, because he died or he went back to his homeland. Um, you know, so, so it's, it's hard to know. But, but uh, it is interesting, right, to see already from the very beginning that David had these non-Jewish warriors together with him. Wasn't Bathsheba's husband a Hittite? Ah, oh, man. It's like, you're, it's like I planted you. Okay. <laughs> so here's the next... <laughs> Here's the next uh, possible explanation. So this is in the Das Mikra. Yes, exactly right. But take a look at the Das Mikra, number 10. That maybe this Achimelech who Uriah Hachiti is the same Uriah Hachiti, the original husband of Bathsheba, that David sends to his death. Right? That... That because in Tanakh, you know, Achimelech, Achiyah, Uriah, the Cha, the Ah, there's a lot of interchangeable interchangeability with these letters, right? So it could very well be that Uriah Hachiti is really Achimelech Hachiti. How can right? you be worried about Shiva? Well, it could be a convert also, 
right? It could be maybe he did convert, right? So now this is a different approach. The first approach is that he was a non-Jew who came to fight with David. Second approach is that this is the Uriah who, who converted and was Bathsheba's original husband, right? If you look at number 11, so David, you know, when he was trying to get rid of Uriah, um, when Uriah came to him, you know, David asked him, you know, how Yoav was, and he said to him, raid Levetecha, go down to your house and wash your feet, right? He says, but Uriah says, lo yarad, I'm not going, right? He refused to go down, right? And then David said, lo yaradata, you know, why not, right? This whole yarad, will you go down? What's the, what's the deal here, right? He refuses, you know, to, to listen to David, right? There's like, he's, he's pushing back on David. And then eventually he goes up back to war and Yoav sends him out to get killed um, in war. But, but Uriah HaChiti is not exactly the, uh, I mean, the king. King David himself is telling you to do something and you don't do it, right? He seems to be a bit of a, you know, a confident, independent personality. David asks Achimelech, right, who's, come with me. And Achimelech's like, yeah, no, I don't think so, <laughs> right? Not a good idea. Fascinating, no? There's like, even like a similarity. The only, we know nothing about Achimelech. We're told nothing just for the, just the fact that he doesn't go with him. But that already, that's what we know about Uriah. It could be. It could very well be, right? Which I thought was very, very interesting. So perhaps, you know, if this is the same person, there's an underlying tension from this moment where he refuses to listen to David all the way down, you know, to, to the story of Bathsheba where he refuses to listen to David. Um, you know, and, but David didn't say, he said, do you want to? He actually volunteers. He didn't volunteer. That's he, different. Wasn't, he wasn't king yet. That's different than contradicting. It's true. It's true. But, you know, when the king comes to you, or when, the, when the general comes to you and says to you, you know, I'm going. Who's coming with me? And he looks at the two of you, right? I mean, you know, he doesn't go. Why are we told that? Like, what do we need to know that detail for? Right? What do we need to know any of this for? Just say, Avishai went with David down to the camp of Shaul. What do we need to know more, more than that? It's fascinating, right? These little, little bits, right? A little something here. Now, there's obviously standing up to the king is a very uh, dangerous thing to do, but it's also, there, there's something important in that role as well. You know, Avigail taught David a lot by standing up to him, right? But, so there's a balance here, right? Something to think about going forward. But it's already getting late, and I want to, you know, to me, the most, maybe the most fascinating part of this entire chapter is this Tardema. Okay, I put it here, number 12, but uh, in Pasuk Yudbet, that, So David took the spear and the water from the head of Shaul, and they went, he and Avishai, you know, Avishai ben Surya left. No one sees, nobody knows, nobody's awake. They're all sleeping. For a deep sleep from Hashem fell upon them. I was like, really fascinated by this. What is, what's this deep sleep? Is it the same sleep that fell upon Abraham? Ah, so very good, very good, right? Because this Tardema, or Adam, right? Or Adam, exactly. So, um, so this was, all right, so the Radak tells us very simply that this was, the, Hashem put, gave, created, made this Tardema so that Shaul would not wake up, nobody would wake up. But what's going on here with this Tardema, right? So exactly, right, this is Adam. And Hashem brought a deep sleep upon the man. And he took one of his ribs, right? Meaning he literally took a limb out from him and he didn't know what was going on. 
right? Tardema is like being put to sleep with anesthesia, right? A deep, deep slumber that's not natural. Something, right, which is beyond our, you know, understanding. So Rav Cook, this is, Rav Cook is just always amazing, but, uh, you know, I, but I, I don't know. I, no one sees the world, no one sees as deeply as Rav Cook. Rav Cook writes, number 15. This is in Shemona Kvatsim, which is the, uh, the notebooks that were used. You'll find a lot of these kinds of teachings in other Sfarim also, because they used his notebooks with the Shemona Kvatsim to make all these other books. Rav Cook himself didn't necessarily publish all these books, right? Or wrote, was put together by, you know, by his son and, and his students, and they all put together these books based on his notebooks. So he says, We find from the very beginning this, this concept of Tardema, of a deep sleep. Right, right, so there's a deep sleep that comes down upon. The idea of a tardema is that the person to which it is happening does not know that it is happening. Right? So whether it's Adam doesn't know that a limb is being taken from him, or whether it's Shaul and doesn't know that David is coming and taking away his things, right? There's something happening to you that's very significant, but you are unaware that it is occurring. Okay, uh, right? So limbs are being cut. So this is anesthesia. It's the same thing, right? They could do all sorts of crazy surgeries and you have no idea what's going on. But from this, we get like sculpted buildings, right? Are coming, unbelievable things are being built and you're not even aware. You're not even aware. Right? Only later on, you look back and say, oh my goodness, right? Anybody ever learn history like this? It's much more interesting. Than, than places and names, you know? You read, you, know, you, you read about the Civil War, eh, you know, you get all these names, you get them confused, your dates, you're trying to remember, this battle, that battle, it's a little bit boring, in my opinion. But then when you try to learn history and understand, in retrospect, what was shocking to them then was actually building for years, right? And it was almost inevitable, perhaps, maybe in- inevitable, right? And you go back in, into the 1830s and 1840s and 1850s and you see exactly how it, what, what was happening and they were not even aware. They were going about business as usual, and, and this tardema was on them until it exploded, right? But really, it was being built all this time. They were just asleep. So, zotapam etzame etzamai basar me besari. And what's the deep teaching here? Right? Something unbelievable is happening, and it's actually coming from you, right? The, the limb from Adam is creating chava, right? The unbelie- most unbelievable creation of all time, woman, right? Man is simple. Woman is highly complex and sophisticated. The most unbelievable thing is being created in the history of mankind. And Adam Arishon, like every other man of all time, is completely clueless, right? It's unbelievable, right? Amazing things are happening from Adam, because there is no woman without man, right? The, right? So that's happening. It's coming from him, and he doesn't even, he's not even aware. Isn't that amazing? Not this sort of cook. It's just unbelievable. He's getting to the core of what a Tardema really is. All these things, right? There are movements that are happening. Battles, all these incredible things, revolutions are happening, right? All these things are occurring and people, I'm skipping ahead. We don't even realize that it's happening. I read a whole book, you know, this past year about 1912 and 1913, right? And what the world, what was happening in the world at that time. And in retrospect, you can even see in the ballet, the kind of ballet shows that they were putting on, and re- only in retrospect, of course, right? You could see that there was a war that was coming. Wow. It's like unbelievable, right? It's really amazing. That's fascinating stuff. History is not boring anymore, right? When you go back and you see that it was a tardema, nobody thought such a thing could happen. World War I, right? Nobody thought. 
Kavur moed tatardema vehekitzamagat. So when the tardema is over, eventually it ends, and people wake up. Roim sha'asui hu Right? We see that there are unbelievable things, right? Look at Zionism. Did it really start with Herzl and the Zionist Congress? No, it didn't. There was a tardema. Am Yisrael was asleep. Most of Am Yisrael was asleep. But if you're a student of history, the things that were going on for decades and decades and decades, right, for a full hundred years leading up to that, right, and then it explodes and everybody's shocked, right? It, it, but it was happening all along. It was happening all along. And this is in a good way and also in a bad way, right? This, if you, if you read Ovadia in a real way, and I'm going to be honest here, I'm a little embarrassed to say, I never actually, it, even though it's one chapter, how long does it take to actually open up a Mikros Kedolos and actually learn some Mepharshim on Ovadia? You know, it's not like, you know, Yirmiya, Yeshaya, we all have excuses, you know? And they're a little long and intimidating. Ovadia is one chapter. So, okay, finally, this past Shabbos, I sat for an hour or so, and I went through the Mepharshim on Ovadia. It is talking about this. I'm pretty certain Ovadia is talking to Esav. We're not fighting Esav now. Esav is the West and the people of the West who are supporting our enemies. That's exactly what it talks about. Supporting our enemies. Edom supporting our enemies. And how the destruction of Edom is going to come, right, while Edom is asleep. And if you look at America right now, the unbelievable Tardema. When did, we, when did America lo- Americans lose their country? Right? When did this country, the greatest nation on earth, right? A nation of chesed. I'm forever grateful to, you know, America's the most unbelievable country, right? When did America get to- taken over? Everybody was unbelievable. Everybody was asleep. Why did they call them woke? Right? <laughs> <laughs> it's un- incredible, right? Because they were the only ones who were awake. Everybody else was asleep. Not in the way that they mean it. They were asleep because they were sleeping, right? They were asleep with Netflix, they're asleep, right? This is, like the, this is the key question. The Jews now are finally awake. The question for the Jews of America, are, now that you're awake, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to overcome your fears with courage and so on? Are you going to be able to come to the conclusions that maybe we don't belong here? Right? A lot of things that are, it takes a lot of courage to move to Israel. It's not easy. We have to help them. It's not, God forbid, to look down, right? We have to help. It's very scary. We forget. Once you're living here for a while, you know, you forget how scary it was on the other side, right? So, okay, they're awake now, but they need, they need courage, what about, what about the Christians and the rest of all the good people, the normal people in America, where are still the majority? Asleep. Completely asleep. As it's being taken over. Tardema. Isn't it amazing? This is what's happening. This is the deeper meaning of Tardema. Right? Shaul and his men, they're all in a Tardema. Right? In a way that America perhaps is right now. He's the king. He's chasing David the fugitive, but somehow he doesn't see that Hashem is orchestrating this entire drama. That the whole thing is collapsing around him and he has no clue. He's got his 3,000 men and all have their swords and they're powerful. Right? They think that, that everything is fine. That we're strong. They don't realize that the whole thing is collapsing. That Hashem is taking the Malchus away and giving it to David. Right? You know, that's the, this is the Tardema of America in the negative sense. But there's also, you know, a tardema in, in a positive sense that Rav Kook is talking about that we, we don't realize, but this is, you know, redemption is happening, is being birthed as we speak. Maybe now we're waking up to it, but all the stuff that, the, the, the tumult that's been happening over these last, this last few years, right? And Am Yisrael and the secular Jews, you know, being so uncomfortable, it's actually a sign of life, you know, that they were looking and searching and trying to figure out what, right? What our grandparents gave us is not enough, right? Secular pioneers, not enough, Right? Even the most astute secular uh, pioneers of Israel understood that it was not enough. That one day they're going to owe, owe an apology to their grandchildren. Because we're not giving them anything. We're not giving them enough. 
the soul, right? It's, you can't just work the land. You have to have a deeper soul. So all of this, right? It, it's, there's a tarde, this Tardema, while we were sleeping, we're thinking it's all terrible. Maybe this was what we needed. That Am Yisrael, right? There's the C-section of redemption, right? It's all happening, right? It's all happening as we, as we speak. And it sometimes requires a little surgery to move it along. But this is all our Tardema. We were missing it, perhaps, that we were taking a big step towards redemption. So is it already nine o'clock? Yeah, it's nine o'clock. So uh, whoever wants to go to Marav can stop here. This is such a, a high moment. Um, but I, I just thought I'm going to take three more minutes for everyone wants to stay. It's okay. It's all good. If not, go to Marav. Please don't, uh, please, please don't hold back. Just for one more point, because I thought this is so powerful, so beautiful. Right? So number 16. Right? When David is yelling to, to Shaul, he says, Listen up, my king, my master. Right? Listen to the words of your servant. If Hashem has stirred you up against me, you know, let him accept an offering. But if it be the people of men, all this, this Lashon Hara that's leading to this, right? right? David says, I'm suffering because of you, Shaul. Because of you, you listening to their Lashon Hara, the people of Ziph, you've driven me out this day that I can no longer be connected to Nachalat Hashem, to the inheritance of Hashem. Right, and now you've, you, have, I'm being forced to lech avod Elohim achirim to go serve other gods. What in the world is David talking about? That you have forced me out of the nachalat Hashem to go serve other gods. What in the world does that mean? Philistine going over the Philistine. Ah, so, so look at the Gemara. The Gemara deals with this explicitly. The Gemara says the Olam Yadur Adam Be'eretz Yisrael Afilu Be'ir Shurubav Dekachavim. It's always better to live in the land of Israel, even in a city that has mostly idol worshippers, and not to live in Chutz La'aretz, in exile, even in a city that's mostly Jews, right, in Lawrence. Shekol Hadar Be'eretz Yisrael, because whoever lives in Eretz Yisrael, Domek Kamishi Yeshlo Eloha, right, you're, then you're somebody who has a God. But whoever lives in Chutz La'aretz, you're like somebody who doesn't have a God. And how do we know that? Or first, it quotes in the Pasuk in Vayikra, Latet Lachem et Eretz Kanan, Liot Lachem Lelokim, meaning I will be your God in Eretz Kanan. Right, but also um, quoting Vachin David, because of you, Shaul, I had to leave Eretz Israel. I had to run away to Eretz Israel from Eretz Israel, and therefore that's like I'm serving other gods. So who said that you should go serve other gods? Right, but no, being in Chutzlaret alone is like serving other gods. So there's a lot here. You know, what does this mean that being in Chutzlaret is like serving other gods? You know, there's clearly a distance from Hashem. Even though you can learn Torah, you can do all sorts of things, you can keep so many mitzvahs outside of Israel, you're missing somehow the ikar, right? So I'm not going to go through all the... I'm not going to go through all the... Exactly, all the mefarshim now. There's so many. Take it with you if you have any interest. But Rav Kook writes about how the Torah of Chutz Laaretz is not like the Torah of Eretz Yisrael. That there's a ruach klali, kadosh, the bigger picture, the klal, understanding the nation, seeing clearly where the nation is, only comes in Israel. And we see, I think we all probably know that to be true. Our, our gut brought us from Chutz Laaretz to Israel, but we only fully understood how important that decision was after we got here. Is that, is that fair to say? I know that's true for me. But only once you're here and learning the Torah of Eretz Yisrael can you really grasp the bigger picture. Now, you still have that gut, right? That's all the guilt that people at, in Chutz La'aretz feel about not living here. You sense that you're missing something, but it's hazy. Only when you come here do you have the clarity. So all of this, David is saying, you forced me out of Eretz Yisrael. You took all of this away from me, 
right? I thought that was, how could we who are living here not, you know, not, not take a moment to look at this? So, okay, so God willing, we'll continue in a couple of a few weeks. Look after the, uh, the next, uh, next source. And really, good Hanukkah to everyone who should hear the source. Though.